Hi, and welcome to episode number 13 in the Signal Integrity Journal's Fundamentals Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Bogatin. I'm the technical editor of the Signal Integrity Journal. This episode is brought to you thanks to our friends at Rodian Schwartz. Today, I'm pleased to have with me Ben Dannon. Ben is a principal signal integrity engineer at a major aerospace company where he's active leading the efforts at designing the next generation electronic systems. Join me in my conversation where I catch up with Ben and learn the challenges and solutions for high performance serial links and high performance memory systems. So Ben, great uh, opportunity here to chat with you. I've known you for quite some time, but, but I really don't know a whole lot about your background. And so why don't you, let's just start out, tell me a little bit about how you got started in uh, the signal integrity field. Where, where were you for school and, and what were your first jobs like? Yeah, so yeah, do, let's do the elevator pitch, right? So okay, the, there you go. All right, I'm a Purdue guy, right? So I started ah. off in the Midwest, went to Purdue, and um, got hired out of college uh, for a defense contractor, um, BAE Systems at the time, and worked there for a number of years. And it was that's actually where I interned. And um, at some point, I was uh, recruited over to Bosch, did mechatronics, more high speed design for video encoders. So if you go to like an airport and you see something like BWI, all those PTZ pan tilt zoom cameras that are in the airport. I designed and touched a lot of those, right? Wow. Those systems, right? They're very complex, right? It's like a robot that it's just, it only does pan tilt zoom, right? So it's stationary. I was then recruited from there to a startup for robotics to run and grow a whole robotics engineering team um, on the hardware side. And um, I, I'd been doing more simulation and modeling along the way. And here things got really interesting, right? And so uh, I started working um, with a gentleman that some folks in the industry may know, Lee Ritchie, as a consultant, because we had some really interesting EMC problems. Lee will share the story and say, this is the worst EMC problem he's ever seen in his career. <laughs> <laughs> it was great um, because, you know, I'm sitting in a room with Lee and my boss is in there, my boss's boss is in there. And he looks at my boss's boss's boss in the face and says, straight face, let Ben keep going. He's doing all the right things. He's going to figure it out. Oh, and, good deal. Uh, yeah. yeah. So the, so from that aspect to solve those problems, most of the problems are all power integrity and signal integrity related. So let's go back for a little bit. So you've finished your undergraduate, double E, yep. and, and then you jumped into some design problems that were relatively high speed. How sure. did you how did you get, so to speak, up to speed in learning about the high speed technology? I mean, some of it was just trial and error. Some of it was working with other senior guys and learning from them. Some of it was just OJT, right, on the job training. And the rest was, I'm going to pick up a book. I don't know this and I'm going to learn and teach myself and I'm going to go on SIJ or IEEE and I'm going to find and do searches to see what I can get hits on that resonates with these sort of topics that I'm looking for. Okay. So you did a lot of work on your own in order to get up that learning curve. Yeah. And so when I was at, um, uh, along the way, I started and finished my master's in electrical engineering. Jason Ellison, I just listened to your podcast with him. Yeah. you and I were classmates, right? Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, so so you were at Penn, Penn State as well? Yeah, Penn State, right? So okay. um, I, I don't know if you recall a long time ago when I first met you, I came up to you because I wanted to introduce myself because my advisor, Aldo Morales, Dr. Aldo Morales, uh, knew you, right? Yeah. So he's always yeah. spoken so highly of you. So I was like, 
holy cow, the world is so small, you know, like, <laughs> it's like, oh, all right, my advisor, here's like my advisor, right, at the Signal Integrity Center at Penn State. Um, yeah, and so, uh, yeah, so then from diversity, I went from there, and now I'm in another aerospace defense contractor, yeah. working on some really interesting problems. Mostly what I'm doing is, uh, I work in the ASIC design group, so we work on 14 nanometer sort of ASICs, uh, packaging, board level, and I work on things with really complex FPGAs. Um, so if you look at the new latest and greatest versatile platform from AMD, I'm still getting used to saying that. Yeah. Xilinx uh, or the Agilex platform, those are really interesting to design and integrate on some of our designs today where we have really high density boards. We're trying to fit these things to go up above the sky in the space or on an airplane. And we're not the only ones, right? If you look at just the package that you get from, say, Intel for the Agilex, the core rail target impedance, right, to match it is 500 microns. Wow. So significant PDN challenges uh, uh, designing that power distribution. And, yeah. and, I, know, and I know you've worked in um, both uh, uh, power integrity and signal integrity with uh, DDR systems. I let's, do. Yeah. Let's, let's talk about um, the PDN systems for, for a minute here. So. Yeah. On a, on a practical basis, you know, it sounds like some of these uh, devices that you're working with, their core PDN, you have to be in the less than milliohm kind of range. Most of what I do today, the core PDN is in the sub milliohm, almost all of it. And so what are some of the tricks that you guys have implemented in order to get to that low and impedance profile? Oh, yeah. I mean, you're talking about complex stackups, right? So adding more copper on the inner layers and uh, also keeping the thickness between those laminates on those inner layers between your power and grounds thin, right? Okay. So in order to get the, you have to get the low DC resistance in the sub milliohm range. And so that means thicker copper. So it's like two ounce copper typically in the planes. Yep. And sometimes we're plated up from there, depending on what's required for the system. Wow. But just the thin dielectric only gets you the low inductance to the from the capacitors to the, the pads. How do you get how do you keep that low impedance of the submillium um, oh, to right. a higher frequency? So, yeah, I mean, EM, if and I know you teach this all the time, EM is should be second nature, right? It should be a way of life. We use EM like like Bible, right? So if we're extracting it and we're moving via structures around and optimizing those via structures and placement of those components with respect to these ASIC and FPGA packages, right? Underneath, um, and that becomes a challenge too. Um, there was a design I was just looking at where we put two Agilex FPGAs, which are really dense BGA fields back to back on opposing sides of the board. So just to get those Target impedance, we had to be very clever with how we did our structures of the vias for the cap stitching to those planes. So you're saying that the mounting inductance uh, for the capacitors and their inductance to the power pins, the DJs, that's everything then in and getting that, that low impedance. Fun, right? And so you talked about this in your book. Um, I have most of your books, but your, your primary power. <laughs> and so I, I love um, going back to your book. Like it's right here. It's, it's, this is where uh, the doctor, Eric Bogerton, he this is where he taught it right here. So, and I mean, that's, I, I learned from the best, right? So it's, it's really no secret sauce anymore. It's it's right there. It's written. So Yeah, but you've implemented it. And that's always the, the right. there's a lot of secret sauce that goes into implementing as well. Um, but what you're saying is that uh, if you're really in that milliohm, submilliohm range, that uh, it's all about 
inductance and its complex structure, so you can't analyze it other than a 3D field solver. It's no, a critical I element. I agree with that. I agree. Yeah. And then, you know, I remember back to one of Lee Ritchie's classes when I took a long time ago. Um, you know, he used to preach inductance is not your friend, right? It can be, but very often it's not. And most of the time, the name of the game is managing your inductance. And um, yeah, you look at, um, so PicoTest just came out with a new um, injector probe, right? He just launched this at uh, EDICon. And so to get the bandwidth they needed, which was, I, th I think the requirement was uh, 40 megahertz, he had to move the injector as close to the tips of the probe as possible. And that's what mm. he did to meet that spec. And so that's what people forget, right? That length is inductance, right? Whether you wanna look at it that way or not, but that metal length is inductance. And it's all about managing that length from a impedance perspective when it comes to your PDMs. So that's a really good point that if you're really doing PDN design, you have to be thinking inductance all the time. And the better you understand inductance, how the geometry influences it, the better intuition you're gonna have as a designer to, to set it up. Yep. So um, so you've been working in the uh, power integrity field, and I know you've done a couple of design con papers on DDR. I have, so, yeah. So what, what is the, is that DDR4, DDR5? DDR4, you been working? Uh, mostly, but uh, actually this upcoming design con, I'm doing a boot camp with a bunch of folks and colleagues from Keysight, uh, Herman Ruckerbauer at I Know How. So Kisu Lee Saish is part of our boot camp, right? Okay. And, uh, it, and as well as uh, Hisu Lee, uh, Randy White. And uh, we're looking to try and bring some other colleagues in from AMD and Micron. And the bootcamp is going to cover multiple memory architectures from DDR4, 5 to GDDR, and some of the LPDDR architectures. Wow. And the goal is to teach people what are the basics you need to consider from measurement to modeling. And how do you even design? Where do I even start with these sort of architectures, right? Because if you're talking to somebody at Qualcomm, they're thinking LPDDR, whereas you're talking somebody at AMD or one of the places that I work, uh, we're looking at one of the DDRs. And if you're looking at NVIDIA or even AMD, you're talking DDR or GDDR. And so mm. there's all these architectures and it can be overwhelming, right? So what do you need? What are, what are um, some good design rules you need to abide by? And when do I apply those? So those are the problems you're trying to solve. Are there many common design guidelines across the different DDR families? There are some it... common ones, yeah. Because a lot of times architectures have a lot of synergies and similarities, but you're starting to see divergence uh, in some of the later generations where GDDR, the latest generation of GDDR is now doing PAM4. Right. Wow. Right. Well, and, and and isn't GDDR isn't that single ended? Is it, it point to point single ended? Point to point single ended. Yeah. Okay. And that's GDDR. Uh, why did they go single ended instead of differential? Cost. It's still cost, right? I mean, this is uh, an interesting conversation that uh, I'm always learning. Right. I'm not on the JDEC committee, but uh, some colleagues um, that I'm close with, like Randy White, he is, and. Uh, I, I talk to him about this all the time. You know, it's funny, right? With the latest DDR5 standard. What, why didn't they consider going to a differential-based standard? And it comes down to the end of the day, it's cost, right? Memory is a commodity and it's not gonna change. I always joke, right? Um, we're gonna, memory is always that ankle biter that people can't ignore, <laughs> but it's gonna be there because, you know, we're pushing higher data rates. Well, our CPU just don't have enough on die memory. So they're going to offload it to these memories. 
And it just has to work. And we have to make it work as cheap as possible because people like their cat videos and that's not going to stop. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I, I always was, was uh, curious with GDDR that uses single-ended as at higher, higher data rates. The number one killer problem is always going to be switching noise because you get yeah. a lot of that common current. And, and that's where differential helps you a lot in, yeah. in getting you better margin back. Is, is that a, an issue still with GDDR? Is there a solution for that? Uh, that's a good question. I haven't done modeling the latest standard, but I'm sure there is. I mean, considering that they've migrated to PAM4, so you've just chopped your eye up by three, right? You're still going to yeah. got divided by three. And so um, that's one of my big fascinations right now. I spent a lot of time, and that was one of my other papers that I did, building PowerWare SI models for DDR-based architectures. It's not easy to do that for one, and two, just to get all those models together and know you have good models is a challenge in itself. And that's one of the hardest things as a system designer today, right? You, you, you hit the nail on the head. PowerWare SI should be a second nature thing for these memory systems because SSO and SSN is going to be one of the biggest things that's going to contribute to your channel besides crosstalk. Mm -hmm. And DDR5 is running at 4,800. You can buy a laptop today, right? A year ago, was yeah. now... You look at the Dells, the Lenovo's, it's there. And they're they're already running at 5,600 for certain higher speed servers, right? I mean, Keysight and others are already looking at how do we make this measurement solution work, right? So that's where the guys like from Ruckerbauer and other guys at Nexus are looking at, okay, I got to make an interposer that can handle this from a loss perspective. Yeah. And, and, and so uh, the, the models are really important. How do you verify or how do you get information from the vendor that this model is accurate enough to give you confidence in your simulated results? The, a great question. And so <clears throat> in the paper I just did, we did a measurement correlation where we built a eight byte lane end-to-end -end simulation model across the DIM connector with a DIM with an interposer instrumented for measurement. And so we ran that. I made measurement-based models for the VRM, did extractions for the PDN and bolted on a full PDN to make a PowerWare SI model for all eight byte lanes running. And at the end of the day, after doing the measurement, right, we found we were able to achieve good correlation, but not great correlation. And one of the biggest challenges we faced was the models that we're getting from these vendors. And if you're young, young Joe, whoever coming out of college today, and you're working with a team, how do you know you can trust those models? And their answer is you don't. And it's a, it's a yeah. real problem and how it's going to be addressed. The only way it'll be addressed is if the integrators are screaming and they're saying, we're not going to buy your part until you tell me that this model is invalidated. Uh, I can tell you time and time again, I get models from IP vendors. And I mean, ASIC IP vendors that are wrong. For example, you can look at an ASIC and you do an extraction of that ASIC to create a CPM model. And I'm not talking DDR, but this is a similar example. And you know how many MIM caps are on that die, for example. And you can calculate based on the dielectric constant that you get from the foundry in the tech file, the number uh, of MIM caps, what your total on die capacitance is. And then you can see what these tools like ANSYS Red Hawk SC or Cadence Voltus, these die modeling tools will give you from a capacitance from extraction. And a lot of times I've seen it's wrong. And most of the time what it comes down to is there are bugs in these tools or um, the designer who did the modeling didn't hit some switches to include all the inner layers. And it's the same on the packaging side. 
with the problems I'm seeing from an end-to-end solution in DDR and other sort of memory-based modeling, where you look at solutions like uh, what I just did with the PCK190, which is a versatile platform with a DIM running DDR4-3200. It's running the Xilinx, right? So AMD, versatile, and it's interfaced to a UDIM through a connector running eight byte lanes with Micron memory. Well, the you have a package model and IBIS model for the memory side, and you have a package model and a uh, uh, you have a package model and an IBIS model for the controller side. And so those things I have no control over. I can extract the artwork and get the connector model from the connector vendor, in this case, Ampanol. And I bolt all, the, all that together and I have a channel and I can look at the loss profile and I don't know if it's right or wrong without doing some measurements. Mm -hmm. And when, at the end of the day, what you're gonna find is a lot of times, um, sometimes these models are more conservative or less conservative than they really actually are in real life. Mm -hmm. And then if you don't get good correlation or if you see a problem, it's so hard to debug to go back to say, where's the problem? What, which model's the, the bad guy? Yeah, and I, I mean, we just mentioned, so there were over half a dozen models just right there to build that end-to-end -end channel. Mm -hmm. not including the power component. Mm -hmm. So in your design come paper, you looked at the um, power distribution and the accuracy of the power model and measurements on the power rail itself. Yeah. Um, what about the signal channels? Have you looked at those and done yeah. that measurement simulation correlation? Exactly. Yeah, we did that also as part of the paper. Uh -huh. Do you, sorry. Oh, no, go ahead. Well, when you look at a package model for a DDR memory device, for example, you know, one of the most important metrics is the CCOMP, the input gate capacitance, and how it's going to load things down. Do you do separate measurements, characterization of the actual part to extract what is the input capacitance of those receivers? That's a great question. Uh, in this paper, we did not. In normal day-to-day -day operations, I would love to have that sort of leeway to do that. Unfortunately, most entities aren't going to give the designer that sort of entity. And we're relying on yeah. folks at Samsung, Micron, et cetera, to give the right answer there. Okay. Because, you know, I've looked at, you know, I'm not a DDR expert, but I've done some simulations where some other folks have been doing it. And um, if you look at the channel, if it's a multi-drop, like looking at an, an address line, what you find is... Um, if you just put the interconnects down, the channel's great. You know, you engineer really short stubs, so you so even a multi-drop looks fine. But it's when you add the the device model and you have that input gate capacitance, that's what screws things up. And that says the accuracy of that of the value of that input gate capacitance is everything about how much you can trust that simulation. And I always wondered. I, we tried to get numbers from the vendor to get an idea of, well, how accurate are the input gate capacitance values um, uh, compared you know, in the model compared to the actual parts? They didn't have a clue. Couldn't tell yeah. us anything. Yeah. Um, and so it sounds like, you know, that is a really important number to be able to characterize or, or qualify a part based on. And it's, it's interesting you bring that up because I approached um, one of the big, you know, top four semiconductor companies for memory design or for memory components, right? And I asked them, hey, we're doing this design gun paper. We're doing eye width and eye height correlation to measurement with simulation, full end-to-end -end modeling. And they're like, yeah, we don't, we don't do correlation like that. Mm -hmm. and I said, what do you mean? They're like, yeah, because of manufacturing tolerances in the semiconductor and from lot to lot, the variation is so great. We never look at that metric from eye width and eye height. And I said, 
Really? <laughs> I mean, we we our paper we were able to get um, less than ten percent in eye height and less than five percent eye width correlation, which is pretty good. Yeah. Um, yeah. But you know, I there were still so many areas that we had picked on in the paper where that should be better. Uh-huh. Right? That should be better. I mean, you should be, you know, well under five on both cases, and it's really hard. And I say this um, to anybody who asks, to be a system designer from SIPI perspective, from a system level modeling, it's really hard to do it right because the models that you need aren't always available. And if they are, you don't know if they're right. And so you have to go out and get those models or create them or make them. And a lot of folks struggle to do those because now you're talking about a whole nother tool set that you have to have in your toolbox right? To create those measurement-based models. Mm-hmm. So, and, and how do you know who to trust and who's right? You look at an EDICon presentation I just did, right? Um, with Heidi Barnes and Steve Sandman. Had a lot of fun doing this one where we take this, this, this state-space average model that Steve Sandler invented and he said ADS and we show why the series compensation is so much better with a VRM, a buck regulator in this case, versus a shunt compensation network. I don't understand in power electronics, you can find multiple books where they show a series style compensation network. Typically they're called like a type three, if I recall correctly. And yet you go to your ADIs, you go to your, your Renaissance, your TIs. And I say, why are you guys doing this shunt? You know, you can have better response uh, when you go to the series. You're like, what do you mean? Well, do you know there's a, there's a, there's a transconductance variation that you specify in your data sheet right? That can vary depending on the part due to the air amplifier, 10%, sometimes 30, 40, or 50%. And that can change your transient response by double digit numbers. Hmm. Wow. And so that's an issue with the designers of the switch mode power supplies, it sounds like. Right. That's not all. People say switch mode power supplies, they say power electronics. And I say uh, power electronics and power integrity really need to be one and the same. Because it's about designing your VRM to match to your PDN, to your pay package of your board, and to the package of your ASIC and to your ASIC. If those aren't all designed appropriately, you're gonna you can have chance for problems. You know, in that example you talked about earlier, where you're trying to build a half a million impedance uh, PDN, how how difficult was it to find a a power supply that would provide uh, at the low frequency end that low uh, an output resistance? I can, I can tell you there are some out there. Um, they're made by the big companies like your TIs and ADI. It definitely took some time, right? And, um, <clears throat> and to be honest, um, there are still some gaps with how we pull those in. A lot of guys will just um, say, oh, I got a power supply that meets the current based on the beans, and they won't look at how to match that power supply, that VRM to their impedance, right? And so then they had this big hump, right? Which is all due to the VRM because they didn't optimize the compensation network. And they say, oh, it's stable though. Mm-hmm. But is that, you just created this nice impedance here, which maybe it's not a sharp enough cue to resonate, but you're creating a lot of loss across that in your power supply when you could just match it to your load and have less reflections. Mm-hmm. So when you, um, when you find that low impedance power supply, um, you, you get the power supply, you get the bulk decoupling capacitor, and then you get the rest of the decoupling capacitors that are by the, the devices. Do you have a rule of thumb you use of um, 
how high a frequency uh, you can keep the impedance low with just the VRM and the bulk capacitor and when the rest of the decoupling capacitors start playing a role? Yeah, I wouldn't call a rule of thumb more of like a, a, I guess, a gut feel. I mean, it depends on, you know, typically you can create some rough models without a package, but I like to usually start with a package model. If I'm doing any PDN design, I want to first see what the package is doing if I have a package, right? And if I have a package die model, even better, because that's going to first be my starting point to determine what am I matching to? right? Where is my starting point for this whole design? Because at the end of the day, my load is dictating everything. Uh, and some packages are working in the 30 megahertz range. Some are working at the 80 megahertz range. It depends on the package and how it's designed. And so typically what we see from a board effect perspective in a VRM, most VRMs are only effective to a single digit megahertz, typically in the kilohertz mm -hmm. range, right? Mm -hmm. And your bulks are kicking in after that. And then your ceramics, Lee Ritchie likes to teach that anything over 100 megahertz, which is the known rule of thumb, right? Um, that's the limit of the board and anything on the board, right? Even inductance. Mm -hmm. um, today, what seems more realistic, it's probably closer to that 70, 80 megahertz range, in my mm -hmm. opinion, mm -hmm. right? And the package starts to take over, and that's where it really needs to start doing its job. Mm -hmm. And then after you... Uh, design and then build your PDN, you get that low impedance. Um, you've done a lot of work in actually measuring those really low impedances. Yeah. Um, do you measure them at the board level or on the package or someplace Both. else? Both. We have, um, I work with two-sided measurement fixtures so we can measure the through on the package for some very six and then um, also on the board level with the system, or we can measure from, um, from the, the BGA uh, you know, mounting pads on the board itself if you want to. So all sorts of things like that. Yeah. But when you measure the PDN impedance at the package level, um, you're saying that, hey, it's not necessarily going to the gigahertz kind of range. You know, 100 megahertz may cover the whole frequency range that's important yeah. uh, from the package perspective. Yep. yep. So that's, that's not nearly as taxing as uh, other applications for uh, probing and, and for um, your, your network analyzer. No, you're not looking at like a 67 gigahertz VNA for what you need for some of the, you know, higher speed surges applications, right? Like the PAN4112. Yeah. Are you doing work also in the high speed serial link side or mostly in the power in the DDR? Now is on, I do a lot of time on DDR. So memory-based modeling. So SI there and power SI modeling with PDNs and then some other higher current sort of six FPGAs from a PI perspective, and then series. Most of the series I do is right now it's in the, the 30 gigabit range or less. Okay. Um, so let's talk a little bit before we finish here about your workshop you're going to do at DesignCon uh, in January. Um, so this is going to be a, a, a memory designer uh, tutorial. No, it's not memory designer. It's okay. a, a next gen memory system um, uh, boot camp, right? So the whole idea is to show engineers at a mid-level and if they're interested at entry level, give them an idea of what's required to design with today's and the next generation memory systems. And how would you even start? Where do I look? What are, what are some starting points and guidelines and, and, and road conditions that I need to be aware of so I can stay on the road to be successful? And how do I know if I'm successful? So providing them some workspaces with some tools from a simulations perspective, as well as 
um, some tools from a measurement perspective where we have we'll have some instrumented systems with interposers and show guys how that recipe works. Wow. And it sounds like you're going to be using ADS then as one of the yeah. simulation yeah. environment tools. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And are, are, if folks uh, come to the workshop of the bootcamp, are they going to, are you going to cover topics like the design guidelines for the different memory uh, buses and, and uh, board layout uh, techniques? Yes. 100%. There are lots of things you consider from an EM perspective. We're going to touch on those and we're going to talk about what you need to consider from a crosstalk and how do you route those, right? Where do you care about crosstalk notes? Where are the pitfalls, right? Because a lot of times, you know, people forget about that little connector <laughs> where a lot of your crosstalk issues are. And how do you manage? Um, this is not a well known thing with everybody unless you're at a Micron or Samsung or an AMD. Um, you have a. Um, a switch plane where you switch your reference plane. I, most people don't know that on a dim because dims are designed to be so cheap. Uh, a lot of the reference planes for the signals will switch from BDD to BSS. And oh so, my. And so you need to understand how do you design that with uh, a cap so you can switch, right? Uh, from that reference plane to the other reference plane. So that signal still goes on unless you have a weird loss effect going on. <laughs> but if you extract it, you see it. Mm -hmm. And so uh, b before we quit, you have to reveal the secret then. Okay, you switch from VDD to VSS return plane. Um, uh, how do you manage that without getting the ground bouncer? Oh, uh, I mean, <laughs> the cap and the structures with the VIA, that's that's the key. That's the key. I mean, so would you add to that? I mean, Eric, you're an expert in this just as much as I am, even more so in my opinion. Well, you're, you're saying that it's all about that that loop inductance or that impedance yep. between the planes and about how do you, how do you get that impedance lower? And so how do you even analyze that kind of problem? You just use, uh, 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 you get the S parameters for that path between the VDD and VSS and try to minimize the impedance of that. That's one way to do it. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to use an EM tool to generate those S parameters and, uh, you know, there's some tricks you can do with optimizers and tuners and tools like Sigurdy or ADS and see if you can, um, adjust that by adding more capacitance to resonate out those uh, inductance. And the other tricks you can do if you're looking at it from a layout perspective where you can iterate your layout is you can change the anti-pad, right, of your via structures so you can adjust the capacitance to resonate out some inductance. Those are other tricks that you can do, right? Well, it sounds like this uh, uh, memory systems uh, boot camp is going to be a, a really uh, exciting um, opportunity for folks wanting to learn about uh, yeah. uh, DDR and, and other memory systems. So and it sounds like you've got a really great uh, crew together to uh, of experts to present um, yeah, at the, yeah. at DesignCon. So I will definitely uh, look forward to uh, uh, seeing the workshop there and uh, seeing you at DesignCon as well. Do you have other papers that you're going to present at DesignCon this year? I'm doing another paper with Heidi Barnes and Steve Sandler about uh, VRM measurement-based modeling. Yeah, so it's an interesting topic, right? Um, so there is this state space average model that I built for a, um, a big VRM manufacturer. And you'll see more when you see the paper. And so there's an email board you can buy. And so it, what was interesting is uh, I knew my model was pretty dang close or right. And so when I made a measurement correlation in the time domain, I saw this really nasty one megahertz resonance. And it took a little bit of digging, but it, quickly was realized that uh, it was due to board effects. And there was a cap that was resonating on the board and 
the, the, the manufacturer of the email board didn't even know they were giving folks, those designers, that one megahertz residence for free. Huh. So, <laughs> so the, the, it goes to the point, right, uh, about if, and I think Judy, yeah, Judy Warner asked me this in her podcast, and she said, is there a time when you wouldn't want to use EM? And so I thought about that for a second, and I said to myself, no, there's never a time when you wouldn't want to use EM. It doesn't matter whether you're at the low end from um, a power integrity perspective or at the high end from an SI perspective, because in all cases, the board effects are impacting you, mm -hmm. right? And so if you're not using board effects, you're wrong. You don't have the right answer. And the board effects are all about the fringe fields, magnetic and electric fields that are created by the interconnects. And yep. only way of analyzing those is with a field solver. Yep. Well, hey, Ben, it's been great chatting with you. That's all the time we have for today. I look forward to seeing you at DesignCon and uh, seeing your presentation and your boot camp. Thanks, Eric, for having me. It was a pleasure. Okay. I'll see you guys soon. Bye-bye. That concludes my interview. My thanks to Ben Dannon for spending time with us today and to Rodian Schwartz for sponsoring this broadcast. And thanks to you, our listeners, for joining us. I hope you check out all of our other podcasts at the Signal Integrity Journal. And that's 30 for this edition.